The Music Business Worldwide podcast is supported by Volley Music, a leading financial management platform for the music industry. Volley enables you to track expenses, approve invoices, and make payments 24-7, 365 days a year. For your free trial, head to volleymusic.com. That's V-O-L-Y music.com. Where are all the Kate Bush t-shirts? My name is Tim Ingham, the founder of Music Business Worldwide, and welcome to the Talking Trends podcast, supported by our friends at Volley Music, where we dive behind the headlines to look at what's really going on in today's music industry. So, over the past few weeks, I've done a bit of travelling for business, including spending some time in Berlin and New York and obviously enough in London and in each of these cities I've noticed something that all young people seem to have in common. I haven't seen a single one of them wearing a Kate Bush t-shirt and when you think about it this is a bit of a surprise because following that sync in Stranger Things which premiered on May 27th, yes the months are flying by, uh, Kate Bush is running up that hill, spent the next three months basically laying waste to streaming charts. According to Chartmetric data on Spotify, Running Up That Hill has secured 360.3 million plays in the past three months. That's obviously around 120 million plays per month. The same trend can be seen on TikTok, where videos featuring the track have now been played a phenomenal 11.9 billion times. Again, that's according to Chartmetric data. So enduring was running up that hill's success following the Stranger Things sync. Spotify officially crowned it as its song of the summer in the United States, meaning it was the biggest song on the platform in the biggest market in the world in the three months to the end of August. So running up that hill's enduring success is not in doubt. As expected, there has been a decay curve in the track's popularity on streaming services as Stranger Things placed at the centre of the zeitgeist has inevitably waned. Yet Running Up That Hill is still pulling in comfortably over 2 million plays a day on Spotify globally. But what's weird about Running Up That Hill's soaring performance this summer is that it doesn't seem to have translated into any significant reignition of interest in Kate Bush's catalogue, or indeed in the mythology surrounding one of the most iconic and fascinating artists of the past few decades. That idea isn't just proven by my anecdotal report of gawping at the t-shirts that teenagers are wearing in major cities. There's a really interesting piece in The Guardian this week by Alexis Petridis in which he questions how our modern media diet, most particularly TikTok, is affecting not only the discovery of new artists but of fandom itself. And what really caught my eye in this piece is where Petridis notes that running up that hill, quote, was a huge hit, but the rest of Kate Bush's oeuvre went largely unexplored by the people who listened to it, close quote. He cites the fact that other than a brief appearance in the top 20 of the Billboard 200 for Hounds of Love, that's the album that spawned running up that hill and was pushed up the Billboard chart by running up that hill's success, there hasn't really been any kind of notable follow-up success for Kate Bush from her Stranger Things-inspired moment. The stat that underlines all of this is that Wuthering Heights, Kate Bush's next most popular track on Spotify, currently has 550 million fewer plays than running up that hill half a billion fewer plays. 
And I'm starting to wonder, is it that Kate Bush's oeuvre, I'm, I'm going to be able to pronounce that word properly one day, doesn't have the mainstream legs of her biggest hit? Is it that you simply cannot follow running up that hill? Or is it, in fact, something more basic and economic? Is this what happens when Kate Bush's record company isn't getting enough of a commercial taste from her modern day success to throw the full weight of its marketing machine behind her brand? So if you remember back in May or June when the running up that hill phenomenon was starting to kick off, Music Business Worldwide ran a piece highlighting the fact that Kate Bush actually fully owned her recorded music copyright for that track and for her catalogue. That catalogue continues to be distributed by Warner Music Group, but on a distribution agreement basis for which you'd expect she's sharing perhaps a 15-15% commission on revenue with that record company. It's possibly even a smaller number than that if we're just talking about streaming royalties. Remember, Running Up That Hill did an average this summer of around 120 million streams per month globally on Spotify. Rough industry estimations suggest that would be worth somewhere close to around half a million dollars per month in collected recorded music royalties. Let's then factor in the fact that Spotify has a market share of around a third of all music subscriptions globally, while accepting that Kate Bush and Stranger Things popularity will differ in various regions worldwide. This is just the science bit, but basically to get a very rough total audio streaming income tally for running up that hill, it's probably fair to double the figure we're guessing it got from Spotify. And that brings us out at a million dollars per month. That's a useful round figure. Now, put yourself in Warner Music Group's shoes. You're getting a 15% cut of that million dollars a month. That's $150,000 per month. But you're also paying out 85% of the money you're collecting from that song back out to the artist. Now, on the one hand, this is a great story for the sort of emancipation of major label artists narrative. Kate Bush owns her rights and she's leapfrogged to the top of the global music streaming charts for a sustained period. But it's what comes after that moment that suggests something is askew here. Because it could be argued that for the purposes of maximising the return on this extraordinary pop culture moment and of maximising and I guess elongating the interest in Kate Bush and her legacy, some blockbuster marketing was required from her record company. In my view, in the wake of running up that hill's second coming, Kate Bush's catalogue should have been pushed to streaming and to radio and direct to consumers in the same way that if a Lizzo or a Harry Styles was having a ginormous global streaming hit, their record company would be taking a huge swing at making sure that it wasn't the only hit from their current record. And in that sense, perhaps Warner Music Group and the artist in this case weren't particularly very well aligned. If Kate Bush is on a 15% distribution agreement, and that's my guess, to be clear, it would obviously be commercially more prosperous for Warner to put its marketing dollars towards an artist with whom it had a 50% or 60% or 70% royalty share, especially if Warner owned that recorded copyright. And this is where the rubber meets the road, because the Stranger Things phenomenon has shown that any independent artist, particularly one with a proven hit from decades ago, can, with the right sync or maybe the right TikTok moment, suddenly find themselves with hundreds of millions of streams and a global modern day certified smash hit. And in this example, I think the record company can take relatively little credit for that. 
Presumably, Warner took the phone call from Netflix or the Stranger Things music supervisor and said, uh, yes, please. And it's been collecting its 15% commission or whatever share it might be getting ever since. And that's easy money for Warner Music Group. But I wonder if this low distribution margin ultimately dissuaded Warner from pumping more marketing dollars into Kate Bush's next most popular track or Kate Bush's potential biopic or Kate Bush's fully remastered concert series, etc, etc, etc. Millions of teenagers just discovered for the very first time Kate Bush, this colossal, iconic, incredibly creative and mysterious artist. And then arguably after snatching this hugely valuable captive audience of potential hardcore fans, they've just been allowed to be distracted back to whatever modern ephemera catches their eye. And you can see this in the data. When you research the worldwide Google search trends for Kate Bush's name, There is this huge spike, as you'd expect, in interest from the May 27th Stranger Things moment onwards for the next week or two. And then interest really begins to drop off. I suggest it represents something of an industry failing that by early September, interest in the search term Kate Bush was nearly back down to what it was before the Stranger Things moment exploded around the world. I don't want to be misconstrued here. I'm certainly not saying that Warner deserved a bigger margin on Kate Bush's biggest record in 2022. After all, she wrote and produced and made and sung, and as far as I'm concerned, rightly owns the rights to that record. But has there been a breakdown in the incentive for her recorded music partner to make the most of an absolutely extraordinary moment in pop culture here? Yes, I think there has been. Is there another way this could have gone down? Yes. I think there is. And I think it's an interesting model when you think about the major music companies working with established superstar artists who also happen to own their rights in the future. That model is Taylor Swift and Universal Music Group. Now, the outgoing CEO of Warner Music Group, of Warner Music Group, Steve Cooper, recently criticised this business relationship, suggesting that Taylor Swift had a, quote, skinny, skinny distribution deal, close quote, with Universal. And in Steve Cooper's view, he struggled to understand how it could be commercially prosperous. And I think taken alone, just as a sort of slice of the relationship alone, he might have a point there. Taylor Swift owns her recent masters that are distributed by Universal and Republic for a small margin, especially when it comes to streaming in the United States. In that sense, Taylor Swift and Universal's distribution relationship actually has direct parallels to the Kate Bush scenario that I've mapped out here. But what was missing in Steve Cooper's description of the Taylor Swift deal is that for the past few years, Universal Music Group has followed up that distribution agreement by also signing a global music publishing administration deal and a multi-territory merchandise agreement with Taylor Swift. And what that means is if Taylor Swift has a Stranger Things moment, a running up that hill moment, even though Taylor Swift owns her copyrights, Universal is economically incentivized to spend money to keep the momentum of that moment going. Yes, Universal is taking a relatively small margin of Taylor Swift's business. But in fact, it's doing so in multiple Taylor Swift businesses. It's getting a small piece of a bigger pie. Universal doesn't need as big a margin in her recorded music if it can pick up a portion of her merch and her publishing. And the dream, presumably, for Universal is also to be in Taylor Swift's so-called name and likeness business that would give UMG a slice of any Taylor Swift stage show or biopic that may come to pass. But this is the idea. 
A global service company operating across multiple lines of a superstar's business while still enabling that superstar to keep their recorded music rights and benefit from a so-called skinny margin from their distribution partner. That's a recipe that incentivizes all parties towards success. And dare I say it, it's a model that sells a lot of t-shirts in Berlin. Music Business Worldwide's Talking Trends will be back soon with more insight into today's global music industry. Thank you to our Talking Trends sponsor, Volley Music. Go and check out what they do and how they can help your business at volleymusic.com. That's V-O-L-Y music.com. And if you liked this episode, subscribe to Talking Trends by searching Music Business Worldwide on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. We appreciate you, as ever, spending your time with us.